Support for WJFF Radio Catskill comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. From the Women's Health Center in Homesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center, wmh.org. And from listener donations at wjffradio.org. Okay, and apologies, having a slight technical hiccup here. We will be into Let's Talk Vets in just a moment. Doug Sandberg has a great edition of the program ready just for you, so do stay tuned for that. We're coming right up upon it. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Hi there, I'm Jason Dole, here to remind you to give during our spring fun drive. But I wound up in a short 15-second spot, and the time's running out, and I... Well, I guess I should just say, please give. Uh, donate now at WJFFradio.org. Thank you. You're listening to Radio Catskill. On air, online, on your smartphone, and on your smart speaker. the program is called Let's Talk Vets, and I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Our mission is to provide news, entertainment, and information of particular interest to area veterans, active service members, and their families. In the almost three years we've been doing this program, we've had the great privilege of meeting and speaking with so many wonderful veterans and those who support them. We've always let them tell their story. And tonight we'll meet two more remarkable folks. Jamie Ackerley is a military mom and president of the newly formed Hudson Valley chapter, Blue Star Mothers of America. Tonight we'll talk about those who also serve as they wait for their loved ones to return. I think we can all agree that an icon of the Vietnam War is the Bell UH-1, more affectionately known as the Huey. And they served many missions from moving supplies, moving troops, or evacuating the wounded. The men who flew these jeeps of the air are a very special breed, we think you'll agree. They often put their own safety aside to complete their mission, and in many cases were the reason that a soldier was able to return to their loved ones. Our friend Al Potter is one of these. Welcome to Let's Talk Vets, Al. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Glad you could join us. You and I met at a family gathering, and I was fascinated by your career. It was anything but routine, right? Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think you were bored. That's true. It was the only career I had in the military, so I'm, I'm not sure what's routine or not. Okay. <laughs> were you drafted, or, or did you enlist? And if so, why? I uh, I enlisted. I uh, was not drafted. I think I failed my draft because they didn't think I was very physically fit. So I I actually did enlist for a position where I'd have to pass a flight physical, which was ten times harder than a uh, draft physical, and wasn't worried about it. So you pursued flight training as a warrant officer candidate, and most of us understand that warrant officers flew choppers. In uh, 1968, and in uh, Southeast Asia, that was kind of a dangerous place to be. That's true. I think the uh, attrition rate for helicopter pilots and crew was about 50 percent, and there uh, there probably wasn't a higher attrition rate anywhere else except in the aviation or the Army helicopter business. Why did you choose that uh, career field? Well. I was sort of aimless in college and decided I wasn't going to stay there, and I figured I didn't want to pump gas at the corner gas station. So I actually went to the Marines and said I'd like to enlist and be an officer, and they said, 
go back to school and get a degree and come back to us in three or four years. And the Air Force basically said the same thing. And when I went into the Army, they said, yeah, we can make you an officer. If you want to be an officer, we'll make you a uh, warrant officer and a pilot. And I said, what's that? <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so there was no great desire to fly. It was not high on my priority list. It's just that that was the program that they would uh, sign me up for. So I said, okay, I'll do it. So when you finally got into uh, into training to get your wings, how was that for you? I probably never flown anything, right? I was afraid of heights and still am afraid of heights. And uh, I was terrified that I was going to freeze up in the cockpit. But, you know, after you go get in there and sign on the line and you either complete this or you turn into a real... Uh, private, you know, in a foxhole or something, then there was incentive to do it, and <laughs> it was a challenge. Um, almost a year-long program, so it was uh, was rigorous and, uh, and thorough, and we, uh, you know, we did pretty well in it. <laughs> okay, well, you earned your wings and, and promptly were assigned to serve with the 101st Airborne Mobile Cavalry, predictably. Logged many flight hours doing um, armed recon, downed aircraft recovery, supporting Army Ranger operations. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Okay, it's the uh, 101st Airborne Division. There, There's two parachute divisions in the Army, the 101st and the 82nd. And I was in the 82nd later, but uh, the 101st Airborne parentheses, Air Mobile was in uh, Vietnam, and, and just by a fluke, they assigned me to the cavalry. I had no no desire to be in a cav unit or anything else, but, but that was the luck of the draw, and that's where I went to. In the cav unit, we did a lot of reconnaissance, and uh, the aircraft were color-coded. The Observation helicopters or the loaches were white, the Cobras were red, and the uh, lift or the Hueys were blue. So we would send out pink teams of a Cobra and a Scout to actually recon. The uh, the loach would be, you know, over the trees and looking down and finding stuff on the ground and marking it with smoke for the uh, Cobra to attack or in a lot of cases, marking it with the burning helicopter to indicate where the bad guys were. We didn't have the safest mission in the world, and we were we were all a little wacko and a little young and uh, and and dedicated to the service. The uh, other part of the job, I didn't fly loaches very long. I I didn't quite have the temperament for that, so they said they uh, put me in the lift platoon and flying the Hueys or the uh, the Blues. Our integral support were a platoon of infantry guys, and they were the the blues, and the uh, blue helicopters were the, the lift part of it. So we had our own infantry. We didn't go pick up battalions of other people or anything else. We were pretty much by ourselves, and we did virtually everything as a unit by ourselves. So we had our gun support. We had our observation. We had our... Uh, 20 infantry guys that would secure anything for any length of time necessary, hopefully no more than an hour or two. And for downed aircraft recovery, that was important that we put the uh, infantry on the ground. They would secure the perimeter and rescue the the crew of the aircraft or recover bodies or whatever was necessary. And our 20 infantry guys would also be inserted on the ground and do armed reconnaissance on the ground once in a while, but for the most part, we worked independently, and we were sort of the outcasts in the division. You know, the rest of the division and the helicopters were flying in the mass formations and putting people in and moving them and uh, and doing their real military things, and we were out on the outskirts doing reconnaissance beyond where they were working. So that was a uh, interesting mission and uh and as it went along as i turned into an aircraft commander i also turned into the flight leader for the blues platoon or the blues section and you know led the uh the group of four helicopters for virtually all of my tour 
even though the rank may not have been there as the warrant officer, although most of the pilots were warrant officers, there was a, a few commission types in the area, but I was the flight leader for that group. You know, we were dedicated. There was nothing we could not do and nothing we would not do. If an aircraft went down, we'd go out and rescue it. If we were assigned an area to recon, we'd go out and recon it, no matter what the situation was. So at times, you guys were like the fire department. You must have been on call to respond in X amount of time? That's right. When we were on the downed aircraft recovery, they had a uh, a truck horn set up in our tactical operations center, and if they got the call that there was the downed aircraft, they'd blow this horn. The uh, <clears throat> infantry guys and the pilots would be scattered around the company area within, you know, three or 400 meters of the flight line, and it was our task to be off the ground within two minutes en route to the uh, downed aircraft. We were late on that one day, so we spent the next week practicing how to run and start the aircraft and get off the ground. So we we took it serious that we were going to be off the ground in two minutes. That meant that the aircraft commander would run through the tactical operations center and the operations officer would be sitting there with his finger on the map showing where the downed aircraft was and he'd be saying who the call sign was to to call when we got close to it. But, you know, there was no long briefing or anything else. That was it. It was peek your head in the door and see where his finger is on the map and hear who the call sign was and, and get to the aircraft. And your co-pilot better have it cranked up and you better be able to strap in and and line up the group and get out of there within, you know, seconds. Gives new meaning to fly by the seat of your pants. Well, it's the old meaning. You know, I, I would always relate to the World War One pilots who were in the biplanes flying around with very few rules and uh, the scarf flying or, you know, we had a lot more rules and a lot more regulations, but, you know, we were uh, seat of the pants and there was nothing, uh, nothing sophisticated about the, the operation. Is there any particular mission that stands out in your mind? We did have a uh, downed aircraft one night after we'd been released it was in the winter in the middle of the monsoon, and we were having a, one of the few shows at the officers' club and were ready to watch the show, and they blew the horn, and we all looked at each other and said, we were, we were turned loose for the night. What is this? And they called the, uh, the bartender, and the bartender said, yeah, you guys got to go. So even that night in pitch dark with monsoon rains and everything else, we launched our uh, our flight with our 20 infantry guys on it, and we went out to rescue this Cobra that crashed into the side of a mountain. We never could get to it. The crash site was up in the clouds, and the scouts couldn't get up to see it, and we couldn't get up to the clouds. So after about an hour or so, we, we actually went back and said, we'll, we'll finish this in the morning when the clouds go away. That was the dedication we had, and it didn't matter that we'd been in the club for uh, half an hour or an hour. It didn't matter that, uh, you know, we may not have been uh, truly capable of flying. We were we were out there doing it. Adrenaline has a great effect on many things. So from 69 to 73, you were assigned to the Pershing 56th Field Artillery Brigade in Germany, in the aviation section uh, for administrative support to the brigade. How did you find that duty compared to the excitement that you had uh, left? Yeah, leaving a cavalry unit and going to this, uh, you know, nuclear tip field artillery unit was a, a little different, and it was a way different experience. But the German countryside and uh, mission flying there, we would fly mostly down to their ready reserve site. The Pershings always had a company in each battalion on standby for, you know, shooting their rockets as the uh, Russian hordes came across the, the border. And they would uh, they would set up a company out, out in the boonies way out, and we would fly down there routinely to, uh, you know, bring the colonel or bring a male or, or whatever and on Sunday, we'd always fly the, uh, the chaplains in to, uh, to give them their church services. And we always said, 
these guys are on standby seven days a week. Do we really need to do this on Sunday? And the chaplains always said, yes. So we would fly on Sunday to bring the chaplains to the ready reserve site. We never really had a, a real mission in that. We just did whatever they said. And it was sort of strange for a field artillery brigade to have the aviation sections anyways. In uh, Schwabisch Gamun, where I was, we were co-located with the brigade, so the brigade eventually took us from the battalion, and we all became part of the brigade aviation section. That meant we had uh, UH-1s and OH-58s as the uh, brigade aircraft, and I got to uh, fly the OH-58 or the Bell Jet Ranger, and we would... Uh, fly anywhere in the country or almost the continent. If it was a Huey, we'd have two pilots. If it was a 58, we'd have one pilot. I was assigned a mission one day to go up all the way up north to where some lieutenant was getting his car from the uh, port and crashed into a bridge boatman on the autobahn heading south, and they wanted his boss to go up and say hi to him at the German hospital and say he wasn't forgotten. And that day was, once again, in the middle of the winter with really crappy weather and low clouds and, uh, you know, bad visibility and rain and all that other stuff. And I got the mission and said, the weather says I can't go. The uh, XO for the brigade, the full colonel called up and said, hey, Al, why don't you give it a try? And I said, fine, I'll give it a try. And I think about 12 hours later, we finally got back after accomplishing the mission to, you know, places I had never been to and places that were unbelievable to, to get to through bad weather. But, you know, once again, it was that dedication to mission and, uh, and, and we can almost do anything. Although that day I was looking for... Uh, for blocks so I could turn around and go home, but eventually it became, you know, obvious that I could find a way through and I was going to. So we we actually did that, and that was, you know, cross-country flight that uh, I don't think many single pilots would go on, and uh, true accomplishment to get that mission done. So would you 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 would have been flying a lot by instruments at that time? Oh no, we were. VFR? VFR always, yep. Wow. Actually, the OH-58 was not IFR capable or certified, and, uh, and it wouldn't do it. In a single pilot, you wouldn't do it anyways. So, yeah, this was, uh, you know, bumping into ridgelines and keeping below the clouds and, and trying to read a map while you do it. And the captain I had in the other seat was a field artillery guy who was along for the ride and couldn't read a map from the sky, and, uh, you know, it was uh, seat of the pants, one one guy doing it. <laughs> Made a believer out of him, didn't you? Um, I think he expected it. You know, there was nothing uh, to believe. He just said, yeah, that's how I'm going to get there, and, and this guy is going to do it. So I don't think he quite understood the uh, ramifications of that mission in the never never land that we flew into and so you finally returned back to the states to fort rucker alabama uh, 73 to 78 as a flight instructor for initial entry program so that's the same training that you went through when you came in right that's right and i requested that i wanted to be the instructor pilot and i wanted to go and, uh, and teach the you know the new guys at uh, at fort rucker and I actually got a chance to do that, and I uh, I became good at it. And it was uh, really satisfying to take these student pilots. We'd get them at the end of their 10-month training program. We'd have them for about two and a half months. First, we'd take a couple of weeks and qualify them in the UH-1. Before that, they had qualified in a smaller training aircraft and done instrument training in in whatever. Um, mostly they were doing the instrument training in a Huey, but they were not qualified to fly it at the time. They, you know, just sat in the seat and, and watched the instruments. 
when we got them, we would actually put them in the Huey and qualify them in the Huey, and then we would give them the Army tactics training to fly the, the Army mission in the Huey. And at the end of that training, we would actually graduate them as, as full-fledged aviators and send them out into the wild to work. So then you went back to Germany, to the 59th Ordnance Brigade. Essentially, the U.S. was a nuclear ordnance caretaker for all the Army nuclear weapons, warheads in Europe, and your primary mission was to ensure that uh, U.S. tactical nuclear ordnance deployed in Europe remained safe. What was that like? In the uh, 70s and 80s, there was a lot of uprest and terrorist activity and everything else in Europe, and way back in the early 70s or so, they decided they could not do any convoys of nuclear weapons on the ground. It all had to be in the sky where the terrorists couldn't get to it and interdict it. So all nuclear weapons were transported by air convoy. If you notice in the news lately, they've said that all the ordnance in the states is transported in nondescript 18-wheelers on the, the highway. But in Europe, we did it all by by sky or by helicopter. Even the U.S. forces in our sector would would have their own nuclear weapons, like the Pershing Brigade I was in the first time had their own nukes and all that other stuff, and the infantry and or the other divisions had their tactical nukes, like the Lance, which was a short-range missile, and the uh, 155 howitzer had a uh, nuclear round that it was capable of shooting, and those guys would maintain those and secure them and everything, but if they needed to be moved, then, then we would do the moving, and our Ordnance Brigade actually ran the depot operations to fix them and, and maintain them, and, and if they needed to be moved to the States or something, we'd actually go out and retrieve them and give them their replacements and, uh, and send them back. The other part of that was the, our uh, NATO allies who had bought nukes from us, like the Germans had Pershing missiles, and the uh, Nike Hercules air defense weapon that was designed to shoot down airplanes and formations at 200,000 feet was not needed by then, and, and they had redesignated that to shoot ground-to-ground because it was a radar-guided, accurate uh, missile with a nuclear warhead on it, and they were scattered all over the place, too, both in the air defense role and in, as the ground-to-ground part of it. And the Germans or the Belgians or whoever owned those things would buy the missiles from us, and they'd buy the, uh, the warheads from us, but part of the contract was that U.S. still had to maintain control of it to make sure that no wacko third country would start a, a nuclear war so our brigade had the little detachments all over that would secure the uh, the bunkers where they store these nukes for those third-party countries and we would go out and swap those out and move them also so you know we were once again all over the country and in this time i actually got to fly to all all those places that I just looked at the map to see the first time, except for that one trip up to Bremerhaven. The uh, Bremerhaven route became a, a common practice. We'd go way up north and, and way outside of the U.S. sector into the British and the, uh, the other sectors way up there and fly almost routinely. So that was a really interesting assignment. We flew such diverse or, or long range for the the Hueys, that it was uh, satisfying to, to be able to do that. One of the nice things about that unit was that they considered our mission so important and it was so critical these moves go off correctly. We were always given standing temporary duty orders where we could go anywhere and do anything at any time, and, and our orders even stated that use of existing government facilities was not advantageous to the completion of the mission, meaning we didn't go to the BOQ, we went to the hotel and we maintained a list of the hotels that we figured were satisfactory. 
So then uh, you came back to the States again to Fort Bragg from 82 to 88, and now you're with the 82nd Airborne Division. And uh, lo and behold, you deployed to Grenada in 83. Right. Um, You know, the uh, 82nd, as I said before, was the other Airborne Division. I'm not sure how I managed to get in these two Airborne Divisions, but the... uh, the 82nd was the other airborne division. They were actually on jump status and, and were proud of it. Even as a pilot, they wanted me and all the rest of the pilots to go to jump training. And I, and I'm afraid of heights and I, I don't jump out of airplanes. I drive them. I, I maintain it. You jump out of a perfectly good airplane. What's the matter with you? Right? And, and their attitude was that most of their jump aircraft, at least to begin with, were C-123s, and they said, it's not quite a good aircraft, so, you know, jumping out of it's probably a good idea. Later on, they were doing C-130 jumps, and there was a bunch of C-130s that were stationed right adjacent to Fort Bragg at Pope Air Force Base, which is now Pope Army Airfield. In Granada, I think the Marines dropped in first, and the Rangers dropped in almost at the same time, and and shortly after that, they said we were going to deploy with our uh, aviation assets. We put in a uh, two companies of UH-60s, and at that time I was with the uh, Cobra Company as a uh, scout once again. And they um, they sent us there too. The Air Force said Granada was a combat zone, and they weren't going to... Uh, submit their C-15s to any combat damage by this little rogue operation. So they dropped us off at Barbados, which was uh, 140 miles away, and they said, Granada's that way, you know, good luck. And and we had to deploy over water by any way we wanted to to get there, which was a magnetic compass or a radio magnetic compass and stabilized and a... uh, in a watch to figure out when we were supposed to arrive. And since we were deploying at night, if we missed the island, we were probably going to uh, swim for a while. Our fuel range, I think, then was probably less than 200 miles, and that was 140 miles away. So we deployed over there at night, just uh, time, distance, and heading. We actually got there and, and did the job. We set up on the airfield and, uh, you know, ran our operation out of there and and didn't have a whole bunch to do by the, after the first day or two there. So we, we kept on watching all these C-141s bringing in the infantry guys day after day. And, and I think we're expanding our perimeter out just by them running out of room on the airfield. After a week or so, they said, this is ridiculous, and they came up with a big air mobile operation where we uh, inserted the 82nd Airborne guys all around the island to see if there was anything they could fight. And so after sitting around for a week or so, we we moved those guys off the airfield and moved them all over the island and figured there was, there was nothing left to fight for. So we won that war by... Uh, I'm not sure what. I don't think we shot much, but <laughs> we we did it. It was an interesting experience. Probably the best way to best way to win a war, huh? Yeah, we we didn't have a bar set up though, so it really was a little hard. But and it was in November, which meant it was winter time up up here in the states, but it was still Caribbean sunshine down there, and I got so sunburned. I should have gotten a. Uh, Purple heart just from the sunburn I have. Well, in those days, you could get ridden up for getting sunburned. Uh, boy, I wish they would have. You know, my <laughs> uh, my nose got so sunburned that a month after I got to back to Fort Bragg, it was still peeling, and I'm not sure why it didn't just burn off. But you know, we're wearing the uh, airborne berets, and we didn't have really any sun protection. We certainly didn't. Uh, deploy with sunscreen from from wintertime North Carolina. But 
you know, it was uh, it was an interesting experience. So your last assignment was in Korea from '88 to '89. You took your family with you to the Eighth Army Aviation Standards as an officer in charge of the flight simulator section. You also had some collateral duties. What was that uh, like? What did that entail? Most of the people in Korea were were there on a one-year unaccompanied tour because it really is still a war zone and probably still is today. There were a few slots that were command-sponsored where you actually could bring your dependents, and I got one of those command-sponsored slots in the aviation standardization for the 8th Army and the the command section there. I ran the flight simulator section, which when I got there included a UH-1 flight simulator. As I was stationed there, we built a uh, UH-60 simulator building attached to my UH-1 building, which I also assumed command of, and and we built a uh, Chinook simulator down down south further where the Chinooks were stationed, and I I received that building and, and installed the simulator in there and actually coordinated the installation of it with the uh, contractors and, and controlled the contractors that were assigned both to my UH-1 and the UH-60 and then the CH-47. Other duties that I had there, I was the standardization instructor pilot for the UH-1s, which meant that every UH-1 instructor that came into country would get a checkout and a, uh, a blessing from the, you know, the 8th Army standards, which for the UH-1 was me. And, you know, if you were a COBRA guy, then we had the COBRA standardization guy in the section and, and whatever. So, you know, I did that as well as running the simulator. And... I was also the uh, representative to the Korean uh, Airspace Committee, which was uh, not quite the same as the FAA, but the equivalent. They don't have the the same setup, but it was the uh, national program to, to control their airspace. Most of it was military, and the 8th Army had their representative, who was me, to that meeting. So we'd go to the meetings once a month and talk about how we were going to run the Korean airspace and Korean aviation, really. And that included the uh, commercial guys, the uh, Korean commercial airline was there also as a representative. And we would uh, we would work with that also. The uh, One of the other extra duties I picked up was flying hours officer in charge for the Korean or the Eighth Army, and I would uh, I would get all the flying hours and divvy them out to the individual units and and track and control them and redistribute them or or do whatever is necessary with those flying hours and uh, and basically control and manage, make sure we didn't underfly or overfly the assigned hours. And a lot of times the units would say. I can't fly any more time, but I want the uh, the money that goes along with the hours, and, and it would be up to me to say no. If you take the hours, you gotta we'll give you the money, but you gotta fly them. That control was in there also, and that was out of our Eighth Army Aviation Office. The Eighth Army was a, a numbered command. There's only eight in the U.S. military in the world, and the Eighth Army is the one in in Korea, which is probably the smallest number numbered army in the U.S. Army, but it's still a numbered army. When I'd go back to the States on the conference or something, we'd go to these uh, meeting rooms and have the conferences, and we'd usually line up the uh, major command representatives on the front row and all the guys in the back to support. So along the front row would be Colonel so-and-so, Colonel so-and-so, Colonel so-and-so, and Mr. Potter, and then next to me was the National Guard civilian. And these colonels that were in the back row would look and say, how can he be up there? How can that civilian be up there? I should be up there. And we'd sort of look back and smirk and say, you know, I'm the rep. <laughs> so a couple of years ago, you made a, um, a video uh, interview at the Smithsonian, I believe it was. It was to open, uh, I guess, an exhibit exhibit. 
on helicopters and, and their use. Pretty interesting stuff. So tell us a little bit about that experience. Our local uh, helicopter pilots association got a, uh, a call from this guy that wanted to do these interviews of, you know, Vietnam helicopter pilots. And, and I volunteered to go along with two other guys. And we actually went to the Smithsonian. They interviewed us. His primary focus was the first time you were shot at. Well, I had a hard time with that because in combat, you're when you're brand new or the first time you're shot at, you're so new in country, you don't know what's going on. You don't know which side is up. And, uh, and there was a bunch of new guys that we would joke about that we'd give them responsibilities in the aircraft as the co-pilot to monitor the fuel gauge and make sure it didn't get out of control because they weren't good for much else. And this guy wanted us to talk about the first experience in a combat zone under fire. You know, I remember my initial time in Vietnam, and most of it was just, you know, with my mouth hung open and not really knowing what was going on. And, and I, I can't really answer that. I think his true question on that should have been, you know, in your last or, or your most memorable um, episode being shot at or shot down or whatever. But they, uh, they actually didn't do pretty good on that interview, and I think the other guys had better uh, first-time stories than I did, but that was uh, that was an interesting event, too, and it was nice to reminisce some of that stuff. A lot of the Vietnam guys, when they came back, you know, said, welcome back, and we get spit on and all this other stuff. The uh, pilots, the helicopter pilots especially, always had a camaraderie that, you know, it was just a continuation of the party, and we... We enjoyed the party in Vietnam, even though we'd go out and shoot and get killed the next day. It was always, uh, you know, so uh, dedicated to mission that, that that was secondary, that you might get killed in the in the process of doing your job. It was totally dedication to mission, and and we would not leave anybody behind, and we'd uh, we'd rescue anybody we could, and and do anything we could to make to make the effort work right. You know, it's it's hard to explain that to the young kids that there there was such a dedication and an almost uh, disregard for personal safety just to to work with your buddies. I think the military established in World War One and World War Two that the GI never fights for the unit or the country or the flag. He fights for his buddy that's sitting next to him. And we always had that attitude that the buddy sitting next to us was the one we were going to die for. And even the guy in the, uh, you know, the, the company down the road or the battalion that was out in the, in the field getting shot up or something deserved every effort we could give them to make sure that they survived. So we we certainly had that attitude and uh, and carried it out. Fascinating story. I'm um, going to ask you one last question. Did you suffer from any of the effects of PTS? I don't think so. I, you know, like I say, we uh, we had an attitude that it was a party, and you know, when we get together as a bunch of pilots, it's not welcome home. It's good to see you again. And do you remember this night where we went out and you know got drunk and did this or whatever? It was a uh, you know much different attitude and the. Um, stress relief as we went along and the dedication to mission just I don't think many of the pilots really have the PTSD problem as is the a lot of the grunts who are out in the rice paddies and slugging through the jungles and stuff right. got into we we didn't do that different different experience altogether Al Potter Thank you very much for sharing your experiences on Let's Talk Vets on WJFF. Sure, thank you for having me. Have a nice day. Yes, sir, you too. You're listening to Let's Talk Vets on Radio Catskill, WJFF. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. They also serve who stand and wait is the last line of John Milton's sonnet on his blindness, published in 1673. 
It expresses his frustration when, at the age of 48, he became blind, mainly concerned that his blindness would prevent him from serving God through his writing. Often taken out of original context, this captures the essence of Blue Star Mothers of America. Now here is Jamie Ackerley, president of the new Hudson Valley chapter, to tell us all about this wonderful support organization. Welcome to Let's Talk Vets, Jamie. Thanks for having us. It's definitely an honor for us to be heard as we begin our our journey with this new chapter. Um, our, our program focuses on veterans and active service members, and majority of our content, I have to admit, is vet-centric. We often don't uh, take the time to focus on those who also serve, i.e. the parents, spouses, and children of our service members and veterans. And that's where your organization provides a very important support for mothers of service members. So let's start with a 10,000-foot view of what Blue Star Mothers, the organization, is all about. Um, So Blue Star Mothers of the Hudson Valley uh, chapter focuses on supporting all branches of active duty service members and their family as they begin their military journey. Uh, But, of course, we support our veterans, too, any way we can. Um, As you said, not many organizations focus on those who also serve kind of behind the scenes, which are really the parents and the spouses of those children, children service members and veterans. And that's really where Blue Star Mothers comes in. And that's what we're all about, trying to support the uh, behind the scenes folks. To get things started, there's a poem on the national website, which sums up what Blue Star Mothers is all about better than anything else. Jamie, would you read the poem, Military Mom, for us, please? Sure, it'd be my honor. I wear no uniform, no blues or greens, but I am in the military in ranks rarely seen. I have no rank upon my shoulder, salutes I do not give, but in the military world is where I live. I'm not in the chain of command, orders I do not get, but my son is the one who does, this I cannot forget. I'm not the one who fires a weapon, who puts her life on the line, but my job is just as tough as I'm the one left behind. My son is a patriot, a brave, pride-filled man, and the call to serve his country not all will understand. Behind the lines, I see things needed to keep this country free. My son makes the sacrifice, but so does the rest of his family and me. I love the man I call my son. Soldiering is his life. But I stand among the silent ranks known as the military mom. Tell us a little bit about your son. So my son, he is uh, 19 years old. He just joined the Army active duty last year after attending one semester at our local community college and telling me he was bored after that first semester. He was going the computer sciences route. And it was it was just not challenging enough for him, not to any fault of the college, just that's the type of child that he is. And after spending his junior year and his senior year trying to encourage him to join some type of service, being I'm, I'm an, a veteran myself. He didn't want to hear it. So I was surprised when he came at me after his first semester of college and said he was thinking about joining the military. Again, it's that line between being prideful and fearful all at the same time, but just knowing that it was probably the best decision for him. So he he joined in October of 2019. He was sent to training January of 2020. And then, of course, we all know what happened in March of 2020 with COVID hitting, but he continued on his mission and finished his training, both basic and AIT, and then was quickly notified that he would be deployed. Um, So he is at an undisclosed location, currently serving in a deployment status, and is due to come home relatively soon. So we're very thankful for that. When was your organization founded? 
our local organization was just chaptered recently within the last 30 days, but the national organization was founded back in 1942 uh, in Flint, Michigan. Uh, the Flint News Advertiser printed a coupon asking mothers of servicemen to return the coupon after filling it out. That following February, 300 mothers met at the Durant Hotel in Flint, Michigan, and Captain George H. Maines, who had conceived the idea for the group, acted as the chair for the first meeting. It was decided after receiving 1,000 responses from that ad that they would uh, formally uh, make a permanent established organization known as the Blue Star Mothers of America. And how large is that national organization today, and, and does it transcend international boundaries? Uh, so there are about uh, 6,000 members covering 200 chapters all over the United States right now. And we also are a 501c3 charitable organization, so it, it's definitely legit and growing uh, leaps and bounds. Okay, aside from your primary mission, supporting mothers of those serving in the U.S. military, uh, what other outreach, education, slash support does Blue Star Mothers provide? So that's kind of a, a twofold question. Um, so the first, I'll dive back into the, a little bit of the general overview. So our chapter, our local Hudson Valley chapter, covers seven counties throughout the Hudson Valley. And we are mothers, stepmothers, foster mothers, grandmothers of those who serve uh, the military. Uh, we share our pride uh, and devotion to our service members in our country. We support the efforts and sacrifices our active duty military and veterans uh, make through local activities, fundraising, and community projects. I kind of have this this tag quote. Uh, have you ever heard being a mom is hard? Right. Everybody knows being a mom is hard. It certainly is. Uh, we work to raise our children, nurturing, guiding and protecting them as they grow into adults. We watch with pride and celebrate their independence. Yet the role of a military mom, I know you'll agree with me, is quite different than that of most moms. Our hearts are torn with pride for the patriotic commitment our children have made to protect the freedoms of those they may not even agree with and the fear of the dangers both physically and mentally they will face at home and on foreign lands. We wait, we worry, we watch, and we try not to let our imaginations get the best of us. Uh, and that's where Blue Star Moms come in. We're, we're here to help and support each other. In addition to that, while we are supporting each other, we support the active duty and deployed efforts by sending uh, what we like to call freedom boxes. So they're care packages that we send to uh, any deployed service member anywhere in the world. We support all of our families from the time of enlistment through deployment, through transition back to the civilian life. And of course, we, we can't forget uh, the families of our fallen heroes. Uh, we support them as well by connecting them to resources that they might not be aware of. We also volunteer at our local VAs and hospitals, and we participate in any community project that supports our military. So we, we really stretch ourselves out there to make sure we're covering all the bases. What about your military service? You said you're a veteran. I am. I am. I spent four years in the Army as a medic uh, way back in the early 90s. I did not get to see any active deployments um, because I was in training the whole time. So I, I really, you know, as, as much as I know that I signed that dotted line and committed to Uncle Sam, you know, I, I give credit where credit is due and it's definitely not my way. Um, my brother is also a veteran. He was active Marines for four years, served two tours in Iraq. Those are the gentlemen, uh, the ladies and gentlemen that deserve all of the credit in the world. So I just, I do what I can behind the scenes to support everybody. I just, it's different when you're on the other side of it as a mom. When you're the person active duty and you're out there and you're training and you're on the go, you don't think about who's back at home in a bigger context. You just know you have a mission, you have a job to do. So seeing it now from the mom side, I think it gives me some empathy and a little different spin on the appreciation that we have for our uh, service members. Well, and indeed, you know, you're not alone. Thanks. So if a Blue Star mom is listening or somebody that knows one, if they want to get involved, how do they go about it? Oh, I can't stress this enough. You just said it. Get involved. That That's, you know, the, the biggest thing you can do. So a lot of people don't realize that there aren't criteria to become other than being a mom, that that's the actual membership. But we do have associate members. So, like I said, getting involved is probably the, the best piece of advice I can I can give. When my son left, 
it's kind of like bringing a new baby home from the hospital. They don't give you a handbook on what to expect. So when your service member is taken from you, uh, sometimes rather quickly, there's a loss. There's a there's a hole that's left behind. And unless you experience it, you you really can't empathize with that person. So a couple of us locally here in the Hudson Valley were feeling the same thing, and we were searching for some type of group to connect with. And I quickly realized that Blue Star Moms did not have a local chapter. So we got together and decided, you know what, we need to do this. We've been met with so much support from the local veterans community. And at the beginning of this, you had said, you know, there's a lot of support for veterans, sometimes hard to find, but there's really no support for the family in the beginning stages of an enlistment. Um, When you have so many questions and you don't know what to expect and nobody's reassuring you that your feelings are normal um, and it's okay to cry in the grocery store and it's you know there's so many uh, different roller coasters of emotions that happen when your service member leaves so getting involved you know once our children commit to service and sign those papers you become a blue star mother and no one prepares you for that so become a member of your local chapter and volunteer even if it's not here in the hudson valley there's chapters up in albany there's chapters close to the city You get to connect with others who are going through what you're going through or have already gone through it, depending on what stage they're at. Um, And you can tap into resources that are not always easily found. So membership is open for not only mothers, but stepmothers, grandmothers, foster mothers and female legal guardians. Um, And then we also have our associate members who basically are everyone else, the spouses, the fathers, the brothers, the sisters and the friends. Um, There really is no limit to our membership. Can uh, folks donate to Blue Star Mothers? Absolutely. And I'm glad you asked. We don't exist without support from our communities. So we accept monetary donations to support our missions through our website, uh, Facebook and PayPal. And we also accept non-perishable items to help us pack those freedom boxes I I talked about. And as a matter of fact, I can proudly now announce that we have our first event coming up, our first event for the Blue Star Mothers of the Hudson Valley. New York legislation passed April 9th as Yellow Ribbon Day. We will be hosting a drive-through in accordance with COVID restrictions, a drop-off location at the town of Montgomery Hall. Um, That's uh, 110 Bracken Road in Montgomery from 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. on April 9th. We're going to be live streaming on Facebook throughout the event to show our progress, kind of like the old Jerry Lewis telethon days, if you will. Our goal is to collect enough items, non-perishable items, to pack 50 large flat rate boxes for shipping. Um, and then we'll also need to piggyback on that and collect $1,000 to ship those boxes. A large flat rate box generally runs about $20 per box. Can you elaborate on the types of things you're looking for? Yep. So really nothing that can go bad and things that are in small quantities and easily put in pockets. So trail mix, beef jerky, toothpicks, small tubes of toothpaste, toothbrushes, socks, Things that, you know, sometimes are considered an extra or extravagant item when you're out in the in the field and you don't have access to things. Um, really just anything that, that can't go bad um, that our service members might need. Uh, baby wipes for cleaning, small travel size shampoo or face wipes, things, things like that. So a little bit of comfort from home. A little bit of home. Yep. A little bit of home. Exactly. Okay. Any closing thoughts? Anything we left out? I believe you said when we when we started that we should be wearing red on Fridays. And why is that? That's correct. Everyone that has uh, somebody deployed kind of lives by the motto of a red Friday. So red stands for remember everyone deployed. Um, And basically what we do is we share and show our support by wearing red on Friday, every Friday. And it, you know, kind of signifies when you go to the grocery store and you see somebody else in red, you're kind of able to form that behind the scenes bond, if you will. So and we remember all of our our soldiers um, deployed and everyone until they come home, not just my my soldier. Fantastic. Want to finish this up, Jamie, with contact information, website. Yeah. So we do have uh, now live um, just within the last two weeks, we published our website. So we can be found at www.bluestarmothersofthehudsonvalleyny15.com. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, and that is Blue Star Mothers of the HVNY15. Um, we're also on Instagram. There's a link on our Facebook page to our Instagram. Um, and then once you 
navigate to our website and our Facebook page, there are links to our PayPal QR code scanner for donations. And we proudly accept those uh, at any point. Well, I can't thank you enough for spending the time to share this information with our audience at Let's Talk Vets at Radio Catskill WJFF. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Doug. Be well. We wish to acknowledge the following people and organizations that made this program possible. Al Potter, Vietnam veteran, chopper pilot. Jamie Ackerley, president, Hudson Valley chapter, Blue Star Mothers of America. And John Conley for the song, They Also Serve. And to you for joining us once again on Let's Talk Vets. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. Also, send us your upcoming events so we may get them on the air, both in our public service announcement segments and this program. You can email me at vets at wjffradio.org. You can leave us a voicemail at 845-431-6500. Don't forget, Let's Talk Vets is now available basically anywhere you can find a podcast. Until our next formation, I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your service. Company dismissed. Good night. She kisses little Katie's forehead as she turns out the light. A night ahead in a lonely bed, she's a military wife. She pushes back a tear, then sinks into a chair. Her mind says that's the way it is, her heart says it ain't fair. She knows the price of sacrifice, but she's proud to take her place. In that unsung core of warriors who stay behind and wait, they also serve. Those who stand and wait Praying by the phone To learn their loved one's fate But they're still in the war And let there be no mistake They also serve Those who stand and wait Jake climbs on the school bus Marches bravely to his seat his dad's not home to say so long like his friends along the street. He has to be the man at home as long as daddy's gone. He promised him the day he left that he'd be brave and strong. So he tells his little sister, don't you worry, daddy's coming home. He's eight years old, he's a soldier son. He can hold his own They also serve Those who stand and wait Praying by the phone To learn their loved one's fate But they're still in the war And let there be no mistake They also serve Those who stand and wait stand and wait praying by the phone to learn their loved one's faith but they're still in the war and let there be no mistake they also serve those who stand and
Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all... Support for WJFF Radio Catskill comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com, and from listener donations at wjffradio.org. WJFF Radio Catskill brings us together to be informed, entertained, and enlightened. What you get here is greater than what you'll find on social media or streaming services. That's because Radio Catskill is committed to community